Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. So on Tuesday's episode, we were joined by exhibition curator Jason Cyrus and exhibition conservator Anne-Marie Guerin, who shared insights into their wonderful exhibition, History is Rarely Black or White, on view now until March 20th, 2022, at Queen's University's Agnes Etherington Art Center in Kingston, Ontario. And today, as promised, we are joined by interdisciplinary artist and fashion storyteller Damien Joel, whose work, Songs of the Gullah, is featured in the exhibition alongside two other contemporary artists, Karen Jones and Gordon Shadrach. Collectively, their work demonstrates, quote, the manner in which the burden of colonial history intertwines itself in research, making, and cultural heritage. We are so pleased to welcome Jason back to the show to give us a brief introduction to each artist's work before speaking with Damien himself about the powerful inspiration and meaning behind his pieces in the exhibition. Really, these serve as a potent reminder about what the future of fashion can and should be. Jason, Damien, welcome to Dressed. Jason, part and parcel to the exhibition's aim is to show the ways in which the cotton trade's problematic legacy is still with us today. To do so, the exhibition features the work of three artists, Karen Jones, Damien Joel, and Gordon Shadrach. Please tell us about this decision and how their work is in conversation with the historical garments on view. Absolutely. Um, it's this notion, um, going back to the sense of trying to tell story in a way that allows us to see that history is very much still contemporary. I wanted to put these garments in conversation so gallery goers could see the ways that the legacies of oppression, of racism, of labor are still very much a part of the way that we live and view different people today. Karen Jones's work is this fantastic installation that incorporates raw cotton and black hair in almost like a veil of, of these floating orbs that surrounds the uh, 1820s day dress. And what Karen is trying to speak to, the piece is called Freed, is in the way that the materiality of the garment is tied into the very identity of the folks who are, who are picking the cotton. And that finally their stories are being freed and seen um, as this installation circles the day dress. Gordon Shadrach's work, um, Gordon paints uh, Black men and women in historic style using antique frames. And it's so layered. On one hand, he's speaking to the absence of such portraitures in Western art history. But in the way that he's portraying them, they're very much in conversation with some tintypes on display at the gallery in the exhibition. And by pairing them together, it's this whole sense. You can ask yourself, um, in what ways are the contemporary folks that are being portrayed in these images, in his paintings, how are their experiences different from those in the tintypes? What experiences are different for them and are still the same. 
and uh, for Damien Joel, who I am so, so incredibly privileged to work with. Uh, Damien created, um, you know, this fashion story installation songs of the gala. And based on how Damien has created these garments, he's creating these garments under the same um, ethos as the garments that were created in the cotton collection in the sense of they are telling layered stories. Except Damien's gar in Damien's garments, the stories are very much on display and are in conversation with the Gullah Geechee Nation. Um, Damien is working in the way that the Gullah Geechee Nation live off the land by using that stock fabric and um, referencing their own cultural practices. What's interesting is that the cotton garments and Damien's garments both exist as these polarities. And Damien's garments are very much historic because they're very based on his own archival work, but they're incredibly contemporary at the same time. And Damien's Garley is almost the heart of the show where it really shows us that um, these histories are not something in the past, but the, the legacies live with us today and they're very much past and present. And we are so privileged because today Damien Joel will be joining us next. Damien, welcome to Dress. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Cassidy, for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Yeah, and I don't think I told you in our initial email correspondence, but I've actually, you've been on my guest wish list since last year. Oh, really? Yeah, I saw you <laughs> present on one of your pieces at the a Fashion Studies Alliance event and immediately texted April and said, we have to get him on. He is so incredibly talented. <laughs> so this is really a treat. Thank you. Yeah. So before we talk about your incredible contribution to the exhibition, I would love to learn a little bit more about you. Can you please tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to fashion storytelling as an artistic medium? The first point of contact with fashion uh, was growing up with my mother. She's a single parent. I grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. And so I had always been very interested in the power of dress. And, and what that does to the human psyche, looking at colors, looking at patterns, shapes, etc. And then I was always my mother's go-to fabric shopper. So I was, I was always fabric shopping with her, going into like the fabric piles in the store, meeting with the people who dress the mannequins, just trying to figure out how is it that they were able to do these amazing things with draping those mannequins. And then, of course, thinking about just the context of Jamaica, being uh, one of the most homophobic countries. And so with that comes toxic masculinity. And I know I'm jumping right in um, with the, the heavy stuff, but it is intricately a part of my own identity. I wasn't able or to see a future within fashion. I had always known that it was something that I was interested in, but, but it was on the peripheries because within the context of Jamaica, it just wasn't very possible for me to see a future career-wise. I started, however, in Jamaica as an image consultant. And that was my way of tiptoeing into the fashion world, styling folks, both celebrities, beauty queens, etc., and then being a staff correspondent on the morning show. But then just for the sheer presumption of my queer identity, I started facing a lot of violence, um, both sexual and physical violence that I had that made me flee from Jamaica in 2014, leaving behind my only child uh, and coming here to the, to, to the U.S., New York specifically. Now, having gotten here, I realized very quickly that this was a relatively much more safer space for me to then uh, spread my wings. I feel as though my wings were being clipped in Jamaica. And then now I'm in a space where I can 
exist in the fullness of my own self and, and walk squarely in my purpose, which is rooted in fashion. Everything I've done with my life has often been very fashion centric, even though I am and I go by multidisciplinary artists because there is a there is a, a wide breadth to what I can do creatively. But it's always been fashion centric. And so I started doing costume design at a, a theater company in Queens, Black Spectrum Theater Company. Uh, it was just a happenstance interaction with uh, a friend of mine who was the stage manager and she introduced me to the director and the director and of course my friends typical of them overselling me to everyone they meet this is my fabulous friend Damien he is from <laughs> Jamaica he's an image consultant stylist extraordinaire and then the, the director was like oh interesting piqued her interest and she said do you do costume design and I was like yeah sure I had never done it before but typical fashion for me is that I will say yes to a challenge because it's in in, in line with with the, the path I want to walk on. Of course, I'll panic and have a whole anxiety attack about it privately. But I took on the challenge. And since then, I had been working as a costume designer. Then, you know, I had been modeling and acting. But somewhere along 2019, or the, the latter part of 2018, I was introduced to the Brooklyn Fashion Academy, which was a free incubator offered to, to folks who wanted to explore fashion and perhaps who couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford to go to fashion school. As a refugee here, most of my funds were going towards legal fees and sending money back to Jamaica for my mother and for my child. So going to fashion school was just not a privilege that, that was in the cards. I had already had a degree from Jamaica in media and communication, but I, I was told through, through an interview with a major uh, fashion conglomerate that my expertise and my experience was provincial at best. And so coming out of the depression of receiving that, I decided, okay, maybe I need to chart my own path as a self-taught individual and um, essentially middle finger to the system that tells me that I'm not good enough because I didn't go to Parsons or FIT or Central St. Martin's. And that's been, that's been the journey. So through the Brooklyn Fashion Incubator, they offered me free access to fashion classes, design pattern making classes for an intense, I think, 16-week or 18-week program. And then I presented my first collection coming out of that, of course, tapping into just like sense memory of remembering watching my mother sew and what she did. And I think a lot of that kind of memory exists within my body just epigenetically because my entire lineage has been tied to being sustainable and you know making a way where there's no way so since 2019 i went into fashion designing uh kind of like pushed past the fear but then i quickly realized that fashion designing as part of industry wasn't for me right i didn't find it sustainable i didn't find that it held spaces for me in all of my intersections I also felt as though, and this may sound very, um, very, uh, I guess, taboo to say or, or, or heretic, but I, I often felt as though the world didn't need any more clothes. And when I say that, people look at me strangely, but I, but I do believe that sentiment. I, I mean, thrifting had been something that I did for my own personal wardrobe because I had no choice. But I had to reclaim the shame around wearing secondhand clothing and, and, and kind of use that on my own personhood as a way of, of saying, you know, I don't care what, what everybody else says and what celebrity culture tries to impose upon me that I can't rewear a garment. I'm going to wear it five times. That principle trickled down into my design practice. And so I decided to 
look at telling stories. I, I, was, I was very curious about how is it that we could use fashion in a way that was connected to social justice? Again, because of the, the, the multiplicity of who I am, I'm more than just fashion. I know I had always been an advocate. That's, that's deeply rooted to even my own personality type as an INFJ and all of these other types that I could, I could um, you know, tell you about. But it was just that realization that there was more to be done with fashion. And I think I, I realized it was unsustainable. I realized that perhaps my role in fashion didn't have to be wanting to center myself, but perhaps telling the stories of and, and the histories of, of marginalized communities and using fashion as a storytelling tool, using it as an art form, tapping into to what is seen as mundane and causing people and inviting folks rather to look closer and to look deeply so that then we, we, we see pieces and as not just commodities, but, but as extensions of our own heritage, as parts of history, as archives, living archives. And so that's where that transition came. It was, it was that interview with that, that major, you know, fashion international visual merchandiser who said to me that my work was provincial and I, it was kind of hypocritical to me because you often hear this and these are the things that are said to you. But then when it becomes fashion, when somebody decides that, okay, maybe the Jamaican aesthetic is, is the way to go, it always is somebody who doesn't look like me, um, more specifically a white person who takes it and makes it fashionable. And so I, I decided not to wait anymore for, for, for them to, to give me a pass and to tell me that the work that I do was important. Uh, and worth centering, I decided to center it for myself. And so everything I've done since I landed in New York City, September 21st, 2014, has been very independent of industry and antithetical to, to, to the standards that, that have been imposed. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was a lot. <laughs> You have found your audience. I'm just going to tell you that right here. Um, because, I mean, that's something we're constantly talking about on the show and featuring artists who are, if they're operating within the fashion system, they're challenging it with sustainable and ethical practices or like yourself, just operating completely independent of it. Because are we really going to fix the damage that the fashion industry has done by operating within the same industry and same standards? Absolutely not. Exactly. <laughs> and people like yourself are presenting this vision of what the future of fashion can and should be. And it's so incredible and it's so beautiful and it's so intimately connected to who we really are as humans. Humans, yeah. Yeah. And those qualities that we have forgotten in the fast fashion era, right? What our clothing should be and mean to us. Yeah. Needless to say, what you're doing and how you're using fashion as an art form and as this expressive storytelling technique is just incredible. I'm so excited to talk to you <laughs> specifically about Songs of the Gullah, which is your feature in the History is Rarely Black and White exhibition. Jason, when speaking about your work, said that in some ways, your work is the heart of this show. It's such an incredibly poignant thread, literally cotton <laughs> um, thread between the past and the present. And I'd love if you could please tell us about the inspiration behind this work, maybe starting with telling us who the Gullah Geechee people are. Sure. 
first of all, I mean, Jason is just amazing. I'm truly humbled. You know, just, I think he's amazing. He says I'm amazing. We're like, stop it, just please. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it, the Gullah Geechee Nation is the oldest West African ancestral group in the Western Hemisphere. And so what that means is that they have held on to the heritage that they have been ripped apart from and ruptured from from the coast of West Africa, from from those countries that a lot of the enslaved Africans were taken from, they've maintained a lot of those traditions. And a lot of those traditions are rooted in not just this kind of cultural performance, but also a lifestyle that's very sustainable, a lifestyle that respects the land and honors the land. And so when I learned about them, it was through an, a, a conversation with a dear friend of mine, a fellow artist, Catherine Chairs, you know, she told me, of course, me being Jamaican, I wasn't, there's a lot about African-American history and just American history that I, I was still new to me. And when she mentioned there's a group of folks who lived off the, the coast of South Carolina who spoke a different language, I was like, what? In the US of A? Never heard of it. <laughs> and then I started asking my fellow, you know, Black friends and they're like, no, don't know who they are. This is a problem. These people are, are very much connected to your, to your lineage and the fact that they exist and are thriving in their own self-sustained way is amazing to me. And so I started doing it some, some deep dive. I started looking at artwork, started looking at essays that were written about them, going through archives and books. And then I found, and of course, YouTube videos, and I found um, the name of the chiefess of the Gullah Geechee Nation, Queen Quet. And so when the opportunity presented itself after that first presentation that I did, that first fashion presentation, which was about the Herero tribe in Namibia, a producer, a fashion show producer reached out to me and said, I think your work is amazing. I'd like to give you a slot to show your work during New York Fashion Week. And this was this <laughs> the way this came about was was very interesting, but that's probably for a part two. But just to stay on course, I decided, OK, this is my opportunity to tell this story because I'm not going to design clothes from the sake of just designing it for aesthetic purposes. Because what happens is folks show up to fashion shows, again, centering themselves. It's very self-indulgent and everybody takes a, you know, takes their phone out and it's like, oh my God, amazing. And they take pictures or videos of the clothes and then that's it, on to the next. It's forgotten. It's a moment. It's a fleeting moment. And when I realized the, the labor that I put into making these garments and when I realized the connection between that kind of labor and my own ancestry, and cotton production, the fields that they had to work in. I'm like, there's no way I'm giving this away in such a fleeting way. I had to create a, a space where it would be honored, where they would be honored. And so, yeah, I decided to, to tell that story. I decided to really um, look at part three of the most salient parts of the Gullah Geechee Nation's lifestyle and existence, which is their spirituality their connection to water and their their connection to the land and their respect and honor for the land. And so each chapter within that story, I call it story and not a collection because again, a collection lends itself to this idea of ownership and taking. And so I'm not in the business of people collecting things, but rather folks honoring things where they live and where they reside. And so it's, it's yeah, it's a fashion story broken up in three chapters. One of it being Revival in the Fields, which looks at the story of the hand-me-down garments that were given to the, the enslaved Africans as they worked in the fields, um, harvesting cotton, rice, and indigo for their enslavers and for this mass production. And then looking at white sand dunes and the current plight of the Gullah Geechee Nation as they fight to preserve 
the delicate nature of their coastlines that are being mined um, for and dug up for building of these, um, you know, high-rise complexes. And then also looking at rivers, creeks, and oceans, which is chapter three, that explores the spiritual connection of the Gullah Geechee Nation to the water and how the water is a pathway back to this idea of, or the through line rather, to, to liberation. And what that means is sometimes during that moment uh, or that horrific period when, when, when folks were being brutalized through enslavement, when they were killed, there was this idea of them crossing Jordan's River, crossing over to the other side, and then also crossing, crossing waters, uh, you know, to go up north away from enslavement. So there's always this, con- this, this conversation around crossing. And so I wanted to honor all of these things and how they play a part in the past, but how, they, how they're referenced and, and relevant for even the Black presence and the Black future. How is it that we could look at the Gullah Geechee Nation as a case study for how we could live a more equitable and sustainable future? Yeah, and I haven't seen the exhibition in person, but Jason was so kind to share exhibition images with me. And him and I both were just kind of like, seeing your work, it's it, it's incredible. I mean, the amount of technique and construction for one, the way they're displayed for two, it's it's absolutely incredible. I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about how you translate your stories into the constructions of your garments, and maybe a little bit more of the thought process behind how you literally sew those stories. Of course, uh, you know, as with my practice, unlike a lot of designers who will find images and create a mood board, for me, it's so heavily researched based. And so I would pull out abstracts from journals that I'd read and uh, photographs from archives and try to find through existing garments ways in which that I could reconstruct. Because I'm in the business of, I'm all about dismantling and dismantling patriarchy, dismantling capitalism and all of the, those racist systems and, and um, limiting systems. But beyond the dismantling or the deconstruction, I'm interested in the reconstruction. I'm interested in the restoration or reimagination. So I, my, my baseline is usually a men's dress shirt. A men's dress shirt is, is perhaps the most quintessential iconography that represents the man in typical sense, you know, represents patriarchy in this very limited construct. And so what, I'm, what I do is that I use that because that ideology has lived on. Uh, it's the reason we, we, we ended up in the space of enslavement because of this, this egocentric idea that says that I'm one race is better than the other. And so I look at what is presented before us as the standard. I always question, why is this shirt known as the standard for sophistication? Why is it known as the standard for a business? Who says, who says that this is the, the only way to show up? The world over too. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, I, instead of remaking some or, or making something new, what I do is I pull references from the practices of my ancestors, which is they made something out of the out of what was given to them. And so because it exists and it's so ubiquitous, then my practice is rooted in making something out of that, out of the scraps, out of what's handed down, out of what's imposed upon me and reclaiming it in an interesting way. This idea of even food, you know, during enslavement, we, we would get table scraps. And so there are a lot of our meals now, popular African-American meals are from what we would get as the scraps. And so it's the same idea going into the, my design practice, looking at, okay, I'll just take a, 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 a men's shirt that, that somebody has given away and said they no longer want it, donated to the Salvation Army, and then imbue that 
with worth through redesigning it. And in, in an interesting way, causing folks, because it's so, it's so fascinating to me how the value of the work has appreciated because of what I've put into it, the thought that I've put into every stitch and every, every layer. Like for instance, the shoulder seams don't sit squarely on the shoulder as you would be taught in school. And the reason for that is I'm paying homage to the reality of what our, my ancestral existence was, which is we would just get whatever we was given to us. It would have not fitted and we had to make it work. How is it that we can then rework this and reimagine this as a new normal, as a new, a new future where seams don't sit where we're told they're supposed to sit, but rather they're sitting in a space and in a way that speaks to where I'm from and the journey I've had and how I came to be in possession of this thing. And maybe not you as an individual or, or the immediate person here in the present, but the you that you were in, in the past, your, your ancestral lineage. So a lot of that is, is, is called into play when I do my work. And just considering, you know, for instance, with one of the, one of the pieces on exhibit Green Sally Up, it's a pinstripe uh, jumpsuit or overall. But what's interesting is that that overall is my way of rethinking workwear, what they would wear in the fields, and kind of making it something a bit more regal. And of course, using the pinstripe from Deadstock Fabric was my way of honoring the rows of rice and cotton that they would be laboring through and just ensuring that this remains. You know, everybody thinks of a pinstripe, they think of it in a whole different context, but I'm shifting the gaze to say this, these stripes, these rows represent a different kind of rows. Let's talk about the rows of those fields that my ancestors had to labor through. You know, it's, it's all of these things that are coming in together um, to really just add nuance to and, and, and texture to the work that I'm doing. I mean, it's such a beautiful expression to think that these are, you're basically giving, well, you are giving second life to garments that mm-hmm. <laughs> were already on this planet. You're not creating any new production, but you're taking things that already exist on this planet and completely imbuing them with this history, this meaning, this beauty, and this second life, essentially, is just, it's it's really incredible. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It, it, it feels lonely sometimes because, of course, you know, <laughs> there aren't many people who approach the work and the art the way I do with the kind of thoughtfulness. And, you know, even even as I was developing this, uh, as I said, research is so integral to my process. So it was more than just a mood board. It was actually consultations with the chiefess of the Gullagi Nation. And there were a few pieces that I created that I had to pull from the story because she said to me it didn't represent them in the best way possible essentially there's one that i kind of distressed the denim and that was my way of again just leaning into the idea of the tatter the torn the worn but reclaiming that as something more regal she said to me that the elders of the golagichi nation have worked long and hard to ensure that we are, and when I say we, the Gullah Geechee Nation, even though I'm not a part of it, I still do own it because it is, we, there's some connection between the enslaved Africans who came to Jamaica and those who came to the, co- the coast of South Carolina. But yeah, there was, there was just a, a deep intention to honor that because of the fact that the elders have worked hard to ensure that their image is not one of suffering or reflects the malaise of enslavement, but rather a rise above it. You know, and that, that I'm always interested in survival. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing 
just thing to think about what we what we've had to survive and what we as black folks continue to survive on a daily basis yeah um and i want to give space for that and i want to give space for that to exist the fear to exist the pain to exist in a dichotomous relationship with the joy Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. We talk about this a lot on the show, but I mean, the whole premise behind what we do is that clothing is so much more than mere aesthetics, but we live in a day and age where that value, it's been our clothing and what we put on our bodies has been so greatly devalued by the fashion system that we've lost these connections. But you're here to say, if you're going to wear my clothing, your clientele or whoever will put this clothes on their body will know what it means. Yeah. Wear it with a sense of responsibility. A sense of responsibility. And there's a couple designers that I, um, Karina Emmerich, she's been on our show, Emmy New York, that when I wear their clothing and I get compliments about it, I tell them about the designer and the meaning behind her work because there's meaning there. It's not just, yes, this is a beautiful garment, but this, it comes with meaning attached. And I know what that meaning is. So it's really transforming the way that people 
think about clothing and the relationship they have with that clothing because you've given it meaning. Yep. And it's such an inspiration. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. No, it's it's just, I'm just going back to the original question. That goes back to the why. It It goes back to this idea of wanting to, having learned about the Golagichi Nation and realizing that very few people knew about them in my circle and and even those who I was, you know, adjacent to and and realizing that this was an opportunity to advance the history. Unfortunately, our history has been so redacted and so so warped that I felt a sense of responsibility to do the work, do the deep diving, get into the skin of it and 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 really as I said to Queen Quet in my in my one of my last consultations with her, I said, my responsibility is to bring them to the water, bring folks to the water for them to drink, bring those who are unaware, who are ignorant to your existence, to the work that you you folks are doing here, bring them to you to let them understand. Because every time I speak about the Gullah Geechee Nation and folks say, oh, we've never heard about them, then my job is done because at least now you know. And not only do you know they exist, but I hope that you're at least intrigued to learn more about the fact that they're not just a thing of the past. They exist, they're thriving, and they also have fights that they're currently pushing through. Perhaps you could assist with that. You know, perhaps you could advance that. It's all about making clothes into visual archives, that living archives that hold stories. Because that's it. And this is why I don't go by the term fashion designer. Because fashion designer lends itself to this 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 expectation that that I design commodities that people should own and take, and rather I go by fashion griot, which is uh, griot g r i o t is a is a West African term that refers to storytellers. And so what I do is really storytelling. It's the same way the West African griots would tell stories to to that's their way of you know advancing history. We didn't really hold history in history books. We, and when I say we, I'm talking about my African ancestry. We held history through our bones, through dance, through stories, through folklore. And so this is my way of using the thing that, that comes naturally to me beyond the performing arts, because I love it and I do that, I do perform. But the fashion aspect of it is something that I think is amazing. And as you said, if somebody comes to you and gives you a compliment, it's now an opportunity for you to share a deeper meaning and give them a bit of the history so that that history continues to live on and live on beyond me. Yeah, and we're going to absolutely put a link in our show notes to the Gullah Geechee Nation and listeners can go check them out and learn more. I know <laughs> I <laughs> I went to their website and there's so much information out there um, and it really, really <laughs> is incredible that they've been here this whole time and it's just not something many of us know about. So definitely check that out, Dress Listeners. Also, maybe put a, we'll put a link to the Brooklyn Fashion Incubator that produced you be, or helped produce you because <laughs> that sounds oh, yeah, like... amazing. Bro. Such an incredible resource for designers who don't want to operate within the traditional system. As we know, there's just so many deeply embedded issues. You know, Ben Barry's now at Parsons, and hopefully we're going to be seeing some change there. But we've got a long way to go. Um, (laughs) But Damien, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm wondering if you have any fashion stories that we can you can share with us or that you're going to be working on currently or in the future. What can we expect next from you and where can we learn more about your work? So I'll I'll just give you my link tree. Uh, my website is still being re reconfigured because I'm a perfectionist, and that's one of my vices. <laughs> but my current work, really, I've been doing a lot of research on about water and um, 
or connection when I say or I'm talking about um, those of African ancestry connection to water as a spiritual source water as ceremony water as ritual and so that's really the big um, thing that I'm working on is creating a fashion story that explores how is it that we need and depend and should um, you know looking at environmental justice looking at spirituality all of those intersections that come into play with reserve and on the water so that's that's my big fashion story that I'm working on right now. I'm in a research mode. I haven't started doing any sketches, and I'm trying to be gentle with myself to not rush it because everybody's like, "Oh yeah, you've been pushing the songs of the Gullah thing for a while." I'm like, "Yeah, that's that that was intentional because I'm not trying to put out a collection right. every season. It's been two years of this work, and at least you know, at least now you know the name of the work. That's then my job is done. You know, it was taken." That's that. So, so I'm taking my time, being gentle, building slow art. But yes, water is is the focus. And can people find you on Instagram? Yes, you may find me on Instagram. Um, my my blog is the Society Stylist, and uh, my design page slash art page is Intro X DJ. Damien, thank you so much for being here. This has been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Cassidy. I really appreciate it. Damien, thank you so much for joining us and sharing with our listeners your incredible journey and your powerful and potent message about the value and meaning of dress. This is something our dress listeners know is really at the core and at the heart of what we endeavor to showcase each and every week. Artists like Damien really remind us that the clothing we put on our bodies or also the clothing that is designed and produced or repurposed has meaning above and beyond aesthetics. It speaks to our past, our present, our future in incredibly profound ways. And this is no more beautifully illustrated than in Damien's work. And we highly encourage you to check out his work, which of course we will link to in our show notes. You can also find a link to the website of the Gullah Geechee Nation. And of course, trust listeners, you have until March 20th, 2022 to see the exhibition, History is Rarely Black or White, in person at Queen's University's Agnes Etherington Art Center in Kingston, Ontario. And if you cannot make it, be sure and check out the exhibition website, which we will link to in our show notes. There you will also find the link to register for their wonderful online speaker series on topics related to the exhibition. And that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the meaning and the value of the clothing in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. We do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you'll find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More Dressed coming soon. Trust the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.